Hey guys, it's Abel here, and in this episode, I'd like to provide a follow-up for the recent bulking roundtable debate that just came out uh, the day before. I hope that two days were enough to contemplate everything that you've heard to reach your conclusions, but just in case that you're still in a limbo about this topic, I'd like to use this podcast episode as an opportunity to sort of help you settle your mind about this topic and help you reach some sort of logical conclusion with which you can move forward. So first things first, um, 60 to 120 second recap, just in case on what this topic was meant to settle. Eric Helms and Mike Isratel, both of them PhDs and two of the top experts in the fitness industry, have appeared on several platforms multiple times over recent years and have voiced their opinions about the appropriate rates of weight gain during uh, muscle building or quote-unquote bulking phase. And the mic was always a bit more on the aggressive side of things in terms of uh, recommending higher rates of weight gain, recommending upwards of about one pound of tissue weight gain per week as uh, the upper end, whereas that is something that Eric would only recommend to maybe rank beginners. But for more experienced, intermediate to advanced lifters, he would have recommended a much slower approach, at times as slow as maybe one pound a month. And uh, obviously with Mike's approach, so with a bigger, more aggressive surplus, for most people, it will also mean that your bulking phases will be shorter and you will be cleaning up the mess that you have created with that with more frequent cutting cycles. So for example, with Mike's approach, you would be bulking for something like four months. So about 16 weeks, gaining anywhere from four to 16 pounds in the process, after which you'll be maintaining your weight for a while. Or you will do a four to eight week mini cut after that, over the course of which you will lose as much fat as you can without risking muscle loss needlessly. And with Eric's approach, some people could easily be in a constant gaining phase for as long as eight months or even a year because the caloric surplus you've created basically won't make you put on a ton of weight and thereby, by definition, pretty much you won't gain too much fat either that would warrant doing frequent mini cuts afterwards. So that's basically the stance of the two sides in a general sense. And so now let's dive into the main points of contention and the biggest uh, takeaways there. First of all, upon listening back the debate and kind of thinking through what I've heard, it quickly became clear, and I certainly don't want to put words into anyone's mouth here, but the structure of the lines of disagreement looked something like this. Overall, both of them agreed on the main points of a successful bulk, that you need a caloric surplus, of course, you need to train hard to gain muscle, um, you need to see an upward trend in your body weight over time if you want to build muscle the most efficiently you can, and you don't want to get too fat in the process, but you will need to accept some fat gain at least. Now, when it comes to the points of disagreement, um, when it comes to optimizing the physiological sides of the bulk, so if we have no special regards to psychology mindset and people's relationship with dieting and food. The question was not so much whether going very slow with the bulk is better than going faster, but whether there are any downsides of going too slow or whether going very slow, like one pound a month of body weight gain could be at least as good as going faster. So as far as I conceived everything that's been said there, Eric basically didn't disagree with Mike at all, and he emphasized it multiple times during the discussion that he thinks that Mike's approach is completely reasonable. And Mike, while he didn't say or seem to think that Eric's approach is completely suboptimal, he certainly seemed like he was convinced that it is probably not the optimal way to go. 
And certainly, I think when we think it through, essentially what Mike is recommending as an overall strategy from purely a physiological perspective, it's very hard to challenge that. You might prefer to do it otherwise for personal preferences, but in terms of physiological optimality, I would be very hard-pressed to find any sort of real issues with it. And if someone has any in mind, please let me know. So when it comes to the debate that went on about the physiological side of things here, we might as well just narrow it down to, is it okay to bulk very slowly? And by okay, I mean, is it effective enough? Um, and so on this theme, basically the biggest point of contention from Mike's end was this. If you're going for a very long gaining phase, say for four months or longer, potentially considerably longer, such as in the case uh, that Eric would occasionally suggest to certain more advanced clients, basically you're facing a kind of conundrum. You either run the issue of your body fat getting excessively high and thereby running into so-called anabolic resistance, uh, at which point supposedly your body is less receptive to anabolic stimulus and now is more likely to put on excess fat as opposed to muscle, or if you want to avoid that and you're slowing down your rate of weight gain considerably, maybe to a point of gaining only one pound per month, while you may be circumventing the issue of excess fat gain, now you created yourself another condition which might be suboptimal for muscle building, and that is a caloric surplus that is way too small to trigger a real anabolic stimulus to gain muscle. So let's talk about both of these points first. Uh, first of all, the whole topic of uh, anabolic resistance, which would come from your body fat creeping too high. And by too high, I mean up to the 15-ish percent body fat percentage range. Uh, this has been, I mean, if you have been following fitness, bodybuilding, and these kinds of circles, you most definitely have come across this concept that you should stay within an ideal body fat percentage range of maybe 10 to 15% for guys, or, you know, 9 to 16%. Uh, and while this range always made sense to me intuitively as a good practical recommendation or, or practical rule of thumb, as uh, at the lower end of this range, you're very lean and most guys have gr a great six-pack, whereas at the other end of the range, you're still pretty lean and muscular guys will still have a six-pack. So you're always staying within a range where it's psychologically rewarding to train and eat well, not to mention that if you're a bodybuilder who will have to get to stage condition, it's also a good practical recommendation to not venture over this 15-16%-ish body fat mark so that you don't need to diet endlessly to get to stage condition. But, you know, what started to happen over time is that people, some of whom are big, prestigious individuals in the fitness industry, started to blankly refer to this upper 15% body fat percentage mark as this clear cutoff point where everything starts to go to south. And basically, you just start to gain more fat and less muscle as you're staying in a caloric surplus, which are big claims. I mean, giving someone a practical recommendation that will be a nice rule of thumb is sweet. But if you're telling someone that at 15% body fat, everything will go to shit, that is a big deal. I mean, that will affect the decision-making of, of a lot of guys when it comes to muscle gaining and cutting diets. I mean, this is one of the big reasons why now we see a lot of guys who think that they need to get down to 8% body fat to give themselves as much leeway till they get to 15% body fat as possible. Or if they screw up their diet a little and they go from, say, 10% body fat to 12% body fat, they are already freaking out as now this evil 15% mark is um, approaching. And so now they are feeling eager to start cutting again. So therefore, we spent a good chunk of time talking about this. And basically, 
they were largely in agreement about this, that this 10 to 15% body fat percentage range as sort of this uh, optimized spot for building muscle is largely just a practical recommendation. For bodybuilders, it's practical because they will need to be in shooting range from their eventual stage condition. For recreational lifters, it's also practical because, you know, they don't usually lift to look extremely lean, shredded, and muscular at any one specific time, such as a bodybuilding contest. They just want to look generally good. So in general, why wouldn't they aim to stay within a generally healthy and lean body fat percentage range? Furthermore, as Mike pointed out, once you get sufficiently high in body fat, it becomes increasingly more challenging to assess visually your progress and see what's going on, whether you're gaining muscle or you're just putting on a bunch of fat. And, um, you know, as a side note, I think this point for many people actually does come around this 15, 16% ish body fat mark. So for example, a difference between 12% body fat and 14% body fat is relatively easy to spot on your own body if you know thyself well enough. But the difference between 16% and 17% body fat is almost impossible to tell. And additionally, once you're at a spot where you're already way too soft for your own liking, it can be just psychologically demotivating to keep being on point and strict with things. You know, as long as you're already looking more or less the way you want, it keeps you kind of fired up to do the right things nutritionally and also in the gym. Once you're already way softer compared to what you would be happy with, it's easier to get to the mindset of, oh, oh well, like, what the hell is this other day of overeating going to do? Or like, I'm fluffy anyway. So psychologically, there is a lot to be said here. But as far as the physiological ranges that they contribute to, both seem to be in an agreement that not only is it pretty much nonsense that your muscle building capacities just totally tank over 15%, but there's also no solid evidence that they would degrade at all. And because I really wanted to hammer this point home, I explicitly asked them whether they would expect a measurable difference between someone who is always staying between 10 and 15% body fat and someone who always stays between 15 and 20. And the answer in both cases was largely no. Mike even pointed out that when he was milking out most of his gains as a drug-free lifter, he was on average cruising around 20%-ish body fat, occasionally approaching even 30. And he still put on a ton of lean mass in the process. The only difference in their approach seemed to be that in Mike's views, very advanced individuals who already have a very small capacity to build any muscle whatsoever are so sensitive to any degree of hindrance whatsoever in their anabolic potential that even if there is a slight disadvantage from going over 15% body fat, very advanced and trained individual might already feel that. Eric was less convinced of this being the case. However, I think what's important to point out here is that both of them were on agreement on the fact that excessive fear-mongering about the potential harmfulness of going over 15% body fat is needless at best and potentially very harmful for you know more intermediate to beginner lifters who should focus most of their energy on building muscle efficiently as opposed to being hyper-fixated on staying lean at all times, which many of them already have a tendency to do. Okay, next point of contention, which is the potential issues of gaining weight very slowly if we were to go by the lower end of the general recommendations that Eric tends to make, so maybe one pound a month. Mike's two points of contention here basically were the issues related to actually track body weight changes over time, as when you're looking to put on something as small as a pound a month, 
the error margins of your day-to-day weigh-ins can be larger than the amount of weight that you're looking to put on it, put on in the first place. And this could easily lead you to spend one or two weeks easily at maintenance or even in a deficit as opposed to in a surplus because the amount of shifts in your body fluids, sodium levels, glycogen levels could make you think that you're on track with achieving the very small amount of weight, body weight gains that you're looking for. So maybe a quarter of a pound or one eighth of a kilogram per week. Whereas in reality, calorie wise, you could actually have been under eating the whole time. Eric's take on this was that based on his interpretation of the literature is becoming less and less clear to him that a constant measured caloric surplus is as necessary for effective muscle building as we once thought that while you want to stay in a caloric surplus on the net balance in the long term to ensure an overall anabolic state overall what happens on a day-to-day basis does not matter all that much so based on what he said, he fully acknowledges that with a very slow pace of weight gain, you could well spend certain days of the week in a caloric deficit, others at a surplus, others at maintenance, but that's fine because all over, you're still in a net anabolic state. And here, Eric also touched on the fact that many of his athletes actually don't track calories and macros in the off-season, and they are just looking to improve training performance and increase training volume over time and make sure that the scale weight shows an overall upward trend. Here, we actually started to have a very interesting back and forth on the behavioral and psychological implications of a more auto-regulated approach as opposed to a more aggressive approach. And I will touch on that in just a second. But just before I get into that, one thing that I think is important to point out here is that I think while a predetermined larger caloric surplus day-to-day does definitely ensure that you will be in, in a surplus most of the time, but still it will also most definitely have you achieve a vastly different caloric surpluses day to day. And here I would recommend my uh, intuitive eating podcast episode series. I'll link them in the show notes. But if your caloric surplus is say 500 every day, or that's your intention, you know, if on one day you were more active, you needed to run a couple of times to catch your bus, you were walking around more in the gym, you had a bit more caffeine before your workout, so you could push a bit harder. Um, maybe you underdressed a little bit and your body needed to produce more heat to keep your body warm. You might have been only in a net caloric surplus of 100 or even maintenance or even in a deficit on that day. On the other hand, if on a given day you stayed home and you were just watching TV and playing video games all day, you might have been in a calorie surplus of 800 as opposed to 500. On the other hand, with a more auto-regulated approach where you don't track your macros and are just looking for a slow upward trend on the scale, if, for, for example, on one day you have been in a 400 caloric surplus and on the other day you're in a 100 calorie deficit, that might seem at first like you're wasting your time and you're having these cut days in the middle of your bulking cycle. But on the other hand, are you on a cellular level really in a 100 calorie deficit on that day? If on the previous day you were in a 400 calorie surplus, I mean, I would argue that you're not. I mean, it's not like your body just resets every day and you're starting at a blank slate regardless of what happened on the previous day. And especially if you have been in a caloric surplus for a longer time and then you just occasionally dip into a deficit, is that even being registered on a cellular level as a deficit? I mean, I would think that after being in a surplus for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, a lot of the anabolic signaling in your body, like hormonally, in terms of glycogen availability and all that stuff, is already upregulated in general. 
so if you generally have good habits, good calorie awareness, and a good grasp on what kinds of foods you need to support your training and your body, an auto-regulated approach could actually ensure that you are in a more appropriate caloric surplus for your given needs over the long term. So that is my take on the matter. But here came the interesting back and forth on this between Eric and Mike. Uh, Mike said that for certain individuals who are generally big eaters, this approach tends to work great. And these people do make a really good job at creating a caloric surplus over time. However, for some people, the amount of calories that they would just voluntarily put down does not necessarily correlate as closely as you would think with the amount and the intensity of the training that they undergo. So an example that Mike used, some people after very heavy training sessions actually have a significant dampening in their appetite and they actually don't want to eat more. They might actually want to undereat just because of the elevated cortisol levels, catecholamine levels and such. He also mentioned that for very large and muscular individuals, you simply get to the point where their bodies simply don't want to get bigger and thereby do the things that would be required to make them bigger, such as, you know, eating more food. Um, now, I'd like to mention something here, and this might be a little bit controversial, but, you know, bear with me here. I think that the outlook of Mike on some of these things might be shaped by the type of athletic circles that he's coming from, you know. While both Eric and Mike are scientists and both of them generally give out great advice that is very appropriate for natural lifters, Mike, I think, simply has interacted throughout his career with a lot more just freakish athletes, many of whom are admittedly on, you know, special sports supplements, if you know what I mean. And, you know, some of the issues that will naturally come to mind for someone like Dr. Mike, such as, you know, being able to slam down 5,000 calories a day because you want to take a body from... 250 pounds and 10% body fat to 260 pounds and 10% body fat. That is a real issue, but that's also an issue that will also pretty much never be relevant for the average natural bodybuilder who is, you know, trying to go from 175 pounds and 10% body fat up to 180 pounds and 10% body fat. And, you know, still has to watch his calories somewhat to not get sloppy too fast. And, and I'm purely saying this as something to just keep in mind that, you know, all these people, though they are brilliant, their outlook and recommendations will still be shaped somewhat by their own experience. And, you know, when you're working with bodies that have been enhanced with special sports supplements, the capacity to which you can push the limits of these bodies by optimizing everything is just a lot higher. This is why people like Broderick Chavez say that enhanced athletes are just more exciting than natural ones, just as a Ferrari is more exciting to work with than, I don't know, a Toyota. No, Toyota is actually pretty good. Then um, Volkswagen. Anyway, I don't know crap about cars, but so on the contrary, when you are talking about natural athletes, a lot more of this just simply comes down to the boring basic stuff. You know, train pretty hard, but not so hard that you get injured and eat pretty well, but don't try to eat so well that you're developing an eating disorder. And that's a good portion of this entire ballgame. So in general, I do agree that an auto-regulated approach where you just let your caloric surplus to get titrated in based on your hunger and satiety levels is a very workable way to do things. Granted that you develop the right habits over time. And here again, I'd recommend my intuitive eating episode series that I linked below. Okay. Next point on uh, psychological considerations. I, th I think this part was absolutely golden because here it became very clear to me that Eric generally seemed to view all of this in the context of real life occurrences 
as opposed to just purely theoretical optimality. And in this case, real-life occurrences also mean that a lot of the individuals involved in physique sports, bodybuilding, and even just recreational lifters who get very much into the whole physique building game, don't just operate in a headspace where they are just objectively trying to vet out what will be the most optimal rate of weight gain or weight loss for their progress. But, you know, a lot of this is influenced by their their emotions and how much they are using training and nutrition as a means of mental therapy. So one issue that Eric emphasized here is that a lot of physique competitors know very well how to slash their calories and lose weight fast. They get really good at mini cutting. Occasionally, they even get pretty good at contest dieting. And they're also good at pushing their calories high, but they don't actually know how to eat normally and how to not do crazy ups and downs with their food intake. And recognizing this reality is one big reason as to why Eric generally tends to favor a slower more balanced approach as opposed to one where you're alternating between aggressive bulking cycles and mini cuts. And if I may give my own two cents on the matter here, I think if I think back to my times of being in a permanent state of binge purge permacutting cycles, I was flirting a lot with the thought of doing short bulks followed by mini cuts. And looking back, if I want to be completely honest with myself, the reason why this prospect was so appealing to me was that I was looking for a system that would have allowed me to just overeat, have a few binges here and there, and not feel too bad about it because I would have known that the next cutting period will be just around the corner. And once again, I have to say that over time here, it became more and more clear to me that a lot of the subtle differences in Eric's and Mike's approach if not mainly, but in considerable part, come down to the fact that they are just interacting with a pretty different demographic, at least as far as the physique-oriented athletes are concerned, where, you know, once again, Mike is coming from um, circles where he interacted with a lot of machines and just, you know, iron-disciplined androids. And I'm, I'm saying all these things in a positive lighting, by the way. But, you know, Eric has probably seen a lot more mental scars and emotional injuries for, for lack of a better term, with the physique athletes that he has worked with. You know, uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, what would I conclude based on this debate. And I think that this entire question of should you go faster or slower basically comes down to the following questions. Number one, what is your training gauge and how much potential do you suspect that you have at this point? You know, if you are a beginner and can still put on 15 kilos of muscle, or if you're an early intermediate and you can still put on 10 kilos of muscle, like hell, if you're an intermediate and you can still put on five kilos of muscle, I don't think it's unreasonable for you to gain a pound a week. Even if say 50% of all of that is fat, say four months later, if you have put on eight pounds of fat, that's maybe four to six weeks of mini cutting. You still have just completed a six month or so of process in which you have spent about four times longer period of time bulking than cutting and you're back to square one, which is pretty good. Now, if you're someone highly advanced and you can deem yourself to be lucky if you gain another five pounds of muscle in your lifetime and only two pounds of muscle per year, does it make sense to gain a pound per week? So four pounds a month when you know that you can only hope for maybe two pounds in an entire year? Probably not. You know, in the debate, there was some discussion over the question of whether it's worth to push calories pretty high just in case, even as an advanced lifter, to really create that anabolic stimulus. And of course, we couldn't conclude and there is no direct research on this, but probably gaining a pound a week in this case would be just too much. Now, does that mean that we should only go for a pound a month? You know, maybe. 
I think when you listen to the entire rationale of Eric and it becomes clear that he's not trying to make you gain exactly quarter of, of a pound, so maybe like, you know, 100 grams of we- weight per week, but rather he just wants to see a general upward trend on the scale where on average you gain roughly a pound a month. And in the meantime, he adjusts all of this based on how your training and performance goes, how your energy levels are, satiety levels are, etc. It's not an unreasonable recommendation, I think. I would still say that it's just a little bit too conservative for my liking. Like It, it kind of reminds me of the split between the super high volume training and then the very minimalistic, like, you know, six sets per body part per week training programs where they think that if you train four days a week that you're already overtraining. For me, the one pound a month seems just a little bit too conservative. I think why not aim for a rate of maybe half a pound per week? That way, even if, say, 75% of all of that tissue gain is fat, that's like a little over 100 grams of fat gain per week. You could easily bulk for, you know, six or even, even eight months with that kind of a rate. So gaining a pound per month where you could well spend a week here and there unintentionally in a deficit might be just a a needless hassle to get around. So, you know, I'll put it this way. If you're listening to this podcast, odds are that one pound a month weight gain is just needlessly slow. And I don't even think that Eric would disagree with that. He recommends a range of weight gain between 0.5 and 1.5% of your body weight per month. And I would think that this 0.5% mark would be reserved more so for people who are really at the advanced stages of their physique development. So in short, your training age and your potential are big things to consider here. Uh, the next big thing besides your potential to consider or your psychology and your mental outlook on everything. If you are completely emotionally neutral about food and training, I would say simply look at your training gauge and your potential for building muscle and go off of that. If you had a history of binge eating and purging, if you tend to permacut, if you had issues with your body image and are pretty fat phobic to begin with, then I would say that a more balanced approach is probably going to be more appropriate for you. And I think there was a pretty clear agreement on this across the board during the debate. Uh, I really like how Eric phrased it, that he tends to customize his recommendations based on what the person in question is more likely to benefit from practicing. You know, a more balanced approach or a more assertive approach where you're really just trying to optimize every little parameter. Another final thing I think that is worth pointing out here is that a lot of the evidence-based coaches like Eric, who are now swearing by, you know, taking a very slow approach and avoiding the aggressive bulk, have actually done some dreamer bulks in the past themselves, where they actually did put on a fair amount of fluff, probably more than what was necessary, but they also made some of their best gains during those times. Whereas when you look at sort of the mainstream proponents of the super lean gaining approach, you know, most of the people from those crowds often don't have much to show for uh, other than their leanness. And when you look at them year after year, many of them actually don't put on any size whatsoever. And, you know, I certainly have been there myself. So this could naturally raise the point that, Eric, I mean, now you're advocating this slow approach, but you yourself have achieved amazing results on a much more aggressive approach on a dreamer bulk. And certainly, if you look across the board and look at many of the successful bodybuilders from the past, many of them have gotten into some of their best shapes during these dirty bulking periods. I think it's important, however, to think about whether what they did was what has gotten them those great gains, which is, you know, that they were dreamer bulking, 
or what they didn't do was what has gotten them those results. And in this case, what they certainly did not do was this, you know, ultra lean, fat phobic, you know, quote unquote gaining episode where you're at maintenance or even in a slight deficit all of the time. So overall, to me, the biggest takeaways from the debate were the following. Gaining as fast as one pound a week is completely fine if you still have a lot of potential to gain muscle. Gaining half at that rate is also fine if you have not as much potential or if you're just really uncomfortable with putting on weight and putting on even slower than that, so maybe putting on something like a pound a month, is really only appropriate for highly advanced people in my opinion. Or in an instance where you basically just want to maintain your body fat percentage, for example, during the summer, but you want to err on the side of just a little bit higher calories than maintenance. Overall, I think the strategy that you should use is the one that will reliably and consistently allow you to be in a caloric surplus for at least three, four times more time during the year than in a deficit. And this could be done by first gaining for eight months and then cutting for two and then you know maintaining for another two maybe or by gaining for four months and then cutting for one and rinse repeat so my question to you after all of this how will you structure your cutting and bulking phases going forward hey guys i just want to tell you again that your inputs for this podcast will help it grow more than anything and your requests, ideas and comments will contribute to awesome content going live on this channel and podcast more than anything. So if you want to contribute, the best thing you can do is to go on Facebook and look up sustainable self-development. You'll find both the page and the Facebook group that is dedicated to discussions and ideas being thrown around. Go there and note down your comments about what kinds of topics or guests you want to be featured on this podcast and YouTube channel in the future. Just keep in mind the general theme of this podcast and my YouTube channel, which is to help people becoming their best selves in terms of lifestyle as it pertains to fitness and general personal development. This podcast is really dedicated to self-improvement, both physically and mentally. So keep that in mind. So thanks again for tuning in and see you next time.